Welcome to Matan's Parsha podcast, Sefer Dvarim. Each week, a different Matan teacher will share words of Torah to illuminate the Parsha and your week. Today's shiur in Parshat Ekev will be given by Dr. El Ziegler, a graduate of the Matan Scholars Program and a senior Tanakh lecturer at Matan and Herzog College. Today, I'm going to be giving you a shiur on Parashat Ekev. Now, in this week's Parsha, Moshe describes the land of Israel that Am Yisrael are about to enter. And oddly, before defining the land of Israel, before describing it, Moshe first informs the people that the land of Israel that they're about to enter is not like Egypt. And he turns his attention rather briefly to the land of Egypt, to describe the land of Egypt. He starts by saying, and we're in Devarim, Perek Yud Aleph, Pasuk Yud, Ki ha'aret asher atava shama lo This land which you are coming to possess, it is not like the land of Egypt. Asher yitzatem misham, asher tizrad zaracha, vihishkita viraglecha kegan hayarak. So he describes the land of Egypt. He says, the land that you're coming to is not like Egypt. Don't expect Egypt. This is obviously important because the people keep looking for Egypt during their time in the desert. They repeat their longing for Egypt over and over and over. And Moshe begins by telling them, this is not Egypt. But how does he describe Egypt? One would think that at this point, Moshe would point to a theological feature of Egypt, a reason that Am Yisrael had to leave Egypt, a religious reason. But here he describes as Egypt's distinctive feature, the way in which the crops are irrigated. He says, uh, you're not coming to a land like Egypt that that you left that land, and it was a land in which you would plant your seeds, and then you would irrigate that land with your feet like a vegetable garden. So Egypt, according to this description, is a land which is defined by its Nile, by the irrigation canals that have been arranged, that have been dug, by the way in which the Egyptians create a system of irrigating the crops. Let's look on for a moment as to how Moshe describes the land of Israel in Pasuk Yud Aleph. The land that you are coming to, in order to possess it, it is a land of mountains and valleys. By the rain of the heavens, you will drink water. And so here again, you know, what Moshe seems to be describing with regard to the land of Israel is that the land of Israel is the opposite of the land of Egypt in terms of the way that it receives water, in terms of the way in which it obtains its economic productivity, right? And of course, you know, uh, um, this seems to have some kind of uh, theological or religious meaning because from this, Moshe goes on and concludes that what is the land of Israel, this land of mountains and valleys, which is dependent upon rainwater? It is a land, Eretz Asher Hashem Elokecha Doreshota. It is a land that God is seeking. Tamid Ene Hashem Elokecha Ba. God's eyes are always on this land. From the beginning of the year to the end of the year. What is the difference between the land of Israel and the land of Egypt? Well, 
Egypt is a land that is defined by its Nile and by its, as we said before, its irrigation system, the way that humans create a system that ensures economic productivity, that, that ensures prosperity and success. And this for Moshe and for Am Yisrael, is meant to be uh, uh, the main difference between Egypt and the land of Israel because Israel has no river. The Jordan is never called a river. It's never called a Nahar, and it itself is dependent upon rainwater. And not only that, but even when God gives the, the, the promise of the maximal borders of the land of Israel to Avram during the Brit Ben Abitarim in Bereshit Perak Tetvav, he defines the land of Israel as a land which is min Nahar Mitzrayim, Ad Hanahar Hagadol Nahar Prat. From the river of Egypt until that great river, the Euphrates River, Ad Vilo Ad Bichlal, up to but not including. It seems to be that one essential definition of the land of Israel is that it has no rivers. Why? What is so defining? What is so central? And what is so problematic about rivers that we take Am Yisrael out of the land of rivers and we bring them to a land which is dependent upon rainwater? Well, um, I think that what we're seeing here and, and what we're going to try to a little bit develop during the course of, of, of this shiur is that a land of rivers spawns prosperity and it spawns success, but success that is easily credited to humans who are not dependent on anything for survival, right? Once they build their canals, once they build their irrigation system, they seem to be able to obtain prosperity in this autonomous seeming way, right? Look at the way that the, that the psukim themselves, in which Moshe describes the difference between Egypt and the land of Israel, look at the direction in which they direct us to, to, to turn our attention, right? In Egypt, our attention is directed downward towards the feet. You water this with your feet, right? Your feet are either, um, uh, pushing these levers that release the, the waters of the Nile into your fields. Somehow you are the one, the humans are the ones who are operating the system of irrigation in Egypt. And yet in the land of Israel, as opposed to the land of Egypt, the, the psukim themselves direct our attention towards the heavens. They direct our attention upward toward the rainwater. And this, I think, really symbolizes the essential difference between the two lands. We can't forget that Egypt built a stunningly successful civilization in the ancient world. From the vast archaeological discoveries, we see a society, we encounter a society of wisdom and wealth, building, writing, commercial endeavors, Art. They build magnificent structures. They invent extraordinary technology. They make great advances in medicine, and they simply impress the world with their wealth, their wisdom, their culture. But the way that the Tanakh regards Egypt, and I think this is the critical point, is that in spite of all the, the success that this society has in building this uh, very prosperous and impressive civilization, 
Egypt is represented as the opposite of the ideal civilization. Egypt is represented as a civilization which negates and prevents the world from recognizing God. Instead, Egypt deifies humans. It deifies its pharaoh. And I would suggest that it just deifies man in general or humans in general. It celebrates human accomplishment, which is autonomous of any dependence on God. Egyptian success is almost completely revolves around the Nile, right? The Nile, which is so reliable, right? They never have to turn to God for rain. I mean, the fact that the Nile in particular encourages humans to take credit for their own success and prosperity is indicated, among other things, by Yechezkel's description of Paro in Perak Kaftet in chapter 29 in verse 3, where um, Yechezkel describes Paro as this great crocodile who is swimming in the Nile. And as he swims in the Nile, he says, Li ori va'ani asitini. That is my Nile. I have created it, right? So that the Paro self-deifies. He, he presents himself as the creator of the Nile, both taking credit for the prosperity in Egypt and, of course, taking credit for the Nile, which is a creation of God. So, of course, once the, the Paro presents himself and, and to, his, to his people and regards himself as a deity, he has no use for God. And therefore, when Moshe comes before one of the Paros, right, in, in Shemot Parakeh, and, and commands him in the name of God to release the Jewish people from slavery, Paro can so easily proclaim, Mi Hashem asher shma bekolo. Lo yadati et Hashem, vegamet Yisrael lo ashaleach. Right? Who is this God that I need to listen to? Right? And all of this emanates from a certain kind of success, from a certain kind of prosperity, which so easily is credited to humans. Because once the irrigation canals are in place all of their prosperity is basically assured. And this may also explain why prophets so often, when they attack Egypt and when they uh, talk about the demise of Egypt, they particularly focus upon the Nile, which has given Egyptian society this kind of false illusion of autonomous human success. So Yeshayahu, for example, in Parakutet, in chapter 19, talks about the Nile. He says, Everything that comes out of the Nile, everything that grows out of the Nile will dry up and wither away. Right? Yechizkel in Paraklamid says, Vinatati Yeorim Charava, right? I will, I will dry up the Nile. And it shouldn't surprise us that the first two makot, make the point, of course, that God controls the Nile, right? The first Makkah is, uh, it turns the Nile waters into blood. God seems to be saying to Paro, God seems to be saying to the Egyptians, do you in fact control the Nile? And if so, what are you going to do when I strike the Nile and turn it into blood, right? Our second 
um, plague also involves the Nile, right, where the Nile spews forth these hordes of putrid frogs and once again seems to be challenging this Egyptian notion, and particularly the, the notion of Paro, that in fact he is the creator of the Nile. And as such, of course, he bears full responsibility and also full credit for the success of Egypt. Well, these two plagues show the Egyptians and also, I think, Am Yisrael, that in fact, Paro actually exercises no control over the Nile at all. And therefore, in retrospect, all of the prosperity of Egypt has nothing to do with Paro's deified status, with his godlike status. I'm going to suggest that the Tanakh makes a similar point when it refers to bread in Egypt, right? One thing I'll say just about ancient Egypt in general is that, you know, we know that Egypt is is very invested in bread making, right? Uh, we see it all over the pictures and tombs from very, very early on. There are artistic scenes and even actual models of bakeries, of bread making in Egypt. There are loaves of all shapes and sizes found in different tombs. And in fact, you know, many scholars believe that the, the process of, of leavening may have actually been invented in Egypt. And, and even if it wasn't invented in Egypt, it was certainly a very central part of Egyptian society from very early on. Bread symbolizes, of course, or bread uh, represents not just the prosperity and the well-being of Egypt in terms of its economic success, in terms of its ability to feed its people, but it also represents Egypt's military success. The word lechem, bread, is of course related to the word milchama, war, etymologically. Because of course without bread, one cannot be successful in war. One needs to be able to give provisions to soldiers in order to ensure that they will be successful. And so it's not just Egyptian economic success that rests on bread, it's also their military success. And so it shouldn't surprise us that the Egyptians take their bread-making very seriously, right? So we have a lot of different psukim actually in Bereshit, you know, which talk about, which describe how seriously the Egyptians take their bread, right? So think of, for example, when Yosef first gets to the house of Potiphar, and we're told that Potiphar uh, gives everything into the hands of Yosef, except for the bread. So, you know, aside from the fact that Rashi says here that the bread refers to Potiphar's wife, uh, the actual shot suggests that Potiphar's bread making was considered to be something so sacred and, you know, kind of uh, precious that he doesn't give that into the hands of, of Yosef. I mean, later on in Perak Mem Gimel in Sefer Bereshit, we have a similar kind of uh, description of bread or of the importance of bread when we have the brothers sitting down to eat bread separately from Yosef. And then we're told there, uh, kind of a programmatic statement, that the Egyptians eat bread separately from the Hebrews because there is something of an abomination for the Egyptians in eating bread with the Hebrews. We don't exactly understand why, but we do have a sense of how important their bread is. Uh, and so it also shouldn't particularly surprise us that 
after Israel leaves Egypt, I mean, I'm, I'm saying it really immediately after Israel leaves Egypt, just one chapter following the uh, chapter of Shirat Hayam, the Song of the Sea, they immediately express their longing for Egypt, right? This is, of course, one of the troubling parts of the story. But what they specifically express is, we remember Egypt, we remember Bishivtenu al-Sir Habasar, we remember the flesh pots and we remember the bread. We remember when we used to eat bread to satiation, right? The, the bread here seems to symbolize not just Egypt and its prosperity, but also the fact that they don't want to live in a situation in which they are dependent upon God for their sustenance, right? They recall Egypt. They recall being slaves and at the end of the day, getting plentiful rations. But from the Tanakh's perspective, this is the opposite of the goal of taking them out of Egypt. God takes them out of Egypt not to create a society like Egypt, one that regards itself as independent of God, not a society that leads to worshiping their own abilities and their the work of their hands and the work of their feet, but rather to create a society that recognizes where their prosperity comes from, that looks upward to recognize that they are dependent upon God. And so if you look at the end of this story in which Am Yisrael in Shemot chapter 16 expresses its longing for Egyptian bread, the end of the story is God says to them, oh, you want bread? I will give you bread. I will give you bread from the heavens, right? So God says to Moshe, and listen to the words that he uses, Hinani mamtir lachem, lechem min hashamayim. I am going to rain for you bread from heaven, right? Think of it. It's very similar to the distinction between Egypt and the land of Israel that is mentioned in our parasha, right? In the land of Egypt, bread was obtained by human labor, right? And irrigating crops was, was acquired and accomplished by humans who worked very hard and therefore could easily arrive at the conclusion that they get credit. Human beings get credit for their own prosperity. The way in which God gives Am Yisrael rain in the land of Israel, and the way in which God gives Am Yisrael bread in the desert, which is, of course, a reference to the man, right? Lechem min hashamayim, bread from heaven, is the man, right, that they get during the entire time that they're in the desert. The way in which they get this bread is by raining down from the heaven so that they will remember to look upward and recall the source of their bread, the source of their water. In other words, the source of their success and their achievements, right? And also in the beginning of this week's Parsha, when God describes the, the giving of the man in the Midbar, God says, I gave you this man, liman hodiacha, so that I could inform you, kilo al halechem levado ha'adam, that human beings don't survive just through bread. It's not just bread that gives survival. There's something beyond bread. There is 
a relationship with God. In Egypt, bread becomes like the Nile, a symbol of human success, of human prosperity, of human achievement that leads to a sense of autonomy, of independence from God. Israel is designated to come to a land and build a society in which they indeed also seek success and prosperity, but they perceive that all of this derives from God. And this also might lead us to understand a little bit more about why on Pesach we do not eat bread for seven days. It's almost as though we're saying we leave Egypt behind. Of course, when we do come to the land of Israel, there's no prohibition in general. There's no prohibition against eating bread. But every year, during the holiday of Passover, we do kind of leave this bread behind as a symbol, perhaps, of leaving this notion of autonomous prosperity in Egypt behind. I want to return to our passage in Devarim Perkid Aleph in, in Parashat Ekev, where God explains that Israel is a land where limtar hashamayim, Tishte Maim, right? This is a land where uh, by the rains of the heaven, you will drink water. And therefore, remember what it says in the next Pasuk, therefore, Moshe explains, Hashem Elokecha Doreshota, right? God seeks this land. Tamid Enei Hashem Elokecha Ba, Mereshit Hashana, Ve'ad Acharit Shana. God's eyes are always upon this land all year long. To understand this fully, I want to turn our attention to the first place where we have rain in the Torah, the first place where the word matar appears in the Torah, and that is actually at the very, very beginning. In Bereshit Perak Bet, we are told, V'chol siach hasadeh terem yieva aretz, v'chol esev hasadeh, there's no blade of grass. There's not yet any vegetation. Why not? The continuation of the Pasuk, I'm in Parak Bet, Pasuk Hey in Sefer Bereshit, says, Kilo Himtir Hashem Elokim al Haaretz, the Adam Ain Lavod et Haadama. There is no rain yet. And then the continuation of the Pasuk is, and there is no human yet to work the land. Now, the question is whether or not these two pieces in the Pasuk are connected, whether or not God not having been brought, not having brought rain yet is connected to the fact that there are not, there are no people yet, right? Rashi seems to think that yes, indeed, these two things are connected. Rashi says very clearly, Uma ta'am lohim tir. Why didn't God not yet bring rain? Lefi sha'adam ain lavod et adama. Because there is no human to work the earth, right? And then he goes on, he says, ve'ein mi makir betovatan shel gshamim. And therefore there would be no one to recognize the benefits, the great uh, good of the rains. According to a Midrash in Bereshit Rabbi Yud Gimel, at first, God had intended that the world would get moisture only from below, like we see later on in Egypt. At first, God had intended that all moisture would come to the land from below. But then, says the Midrash, 
God changed his mind and decided that the earth would receive its water from the heavens. Why did God change his mind? Well, the Midrash lists several reasons, but it concludes with this final reason. It says, Sheyu hakol tolim enehem klape mala. So that everyone will raise their eyes towards heaven. Rain is designed to link the heavens and the earth, to direct our attention to God, to remind us that we are dependent upon God for everything. Later in Tanakh, rain will become a vehicle both of reward and punishment. We say it every day when we say Kriyat Shema, rain becomes the symbol of God's favor. Rain can be used for punishment. It becomes the symbol of God's disfavor when it's withheld. It is a mechanism that reminds us of our dependence upon God. Humans can toil as much as they want, but Ultimately, success is not entirely in our control. And therefore, Rashi continues and he says, As soon as humans understand what the purpose of rains is, then they will begin to pray. Rashi explains that rain is only important once there are humans in the world, once there are humans to recognize that we must use the reins in order to create a relationship with God. The reins teach us that we can link heaven and earth. The reins teach us that we need to turn to God for recognition that our dependence upon Him is complete. And therefore, ultimately, rain is also a vehicle for tefillah, a vehicle for communication with God. A society of rivers, like Egypt, easily becomes a society which is maybe advantaged in terms of its economics, but it is disadvantaged theologically. It doesn't mean that they cannot find God. It just means that they can more easily go astray. They can more easily become a society which proclaims their own success. If you look earlier in this week's Parsha, when in Perichet, when Moshe is describing God bringing them to the land of Israel, Moshe explains, Ki Hashem Elokecha, I'm in Perichet, Pasuk Zayin, Ki Hashem Elokecha Miviacha, El Eretz Tova, God is bringing you to a good land, a land that has streams of water, a land of chita u'seora v'gefen u'teina v'rimon eretz zeit shemen u'dvash, right? It's a great land. It's a land where you will eat and you will be satiated and then you must bless God. Ve'achalta v'savata And then, of course, Moshe says to the people, be very careful not to forget God in this land. 
pen tochal, lest you will eat this savata and you will be satiated. Uvatim tovim tivneviyashavta, and you'll build these great houses and you'll settle them and you'll have a lot of cattle and you'll have you'll have prosperity. You'll have gold and you'll have silver. Deram livavecha, and your heart will become high. It will become lofty. Vishachachta Hashem lokecha. And you will forget God who took you out of Egypt. And the psukim go on and they say, and he took you through the Midbar and he provided for you during the Midbar. And despite all of this, when you get to the land of Israel, there is the potential that you will say in your heart, it was my strength, the power of my hand that enabled me to acquire all of this success, all of this prosperity. And one of the things I think that this Parsha is trying to teach us is, is that all of this success, with all of this success, we must be different than Egypt. We must retain always this recognition that all of this success must be attributed to God. Now, I'll make one more point here, and that is that, you know, um, like Egypt, Ganeden is also built around rivers, right? We also, we start out our human existence in a place which is very similar to Egypt in certain fundamental ways. Actually, you know, uh, the Tanakh itself in Bereshit Perkud Gimel compares Egypt and Gan Eden. When Lot looks up and sees the fertile area of the Jordan Valley, he looks up and he sees Kigan Hashem, Ke'eretz Mitzrayim. He sees Stilman Amor and he says, wow, it's like the garden of God. It's like the land of Egypt, right? Both of these are places of easy fertility. And yet, despite the beauty, the idyllic life of Gan Eden, none of our Tanakh heroes try to go back to Gan Eden. And I'd like to suggest that the reason is that Ganeden, in certain fundamental ways, becomes, like Egypt, a place which is defined by easily losing our sense of dependence upon God. Don't forget there that we have the image of the snake. Of course, it's a rather uh, metaphoric or, or kind of a strange snake, one that walks and talks. It's quite reminiscent of Egypt. Don't forget that the snake in Yermiyahu Perak Memvav, and also in terms of all sorts of um, pictures in Egypt, the snake is a symbol of Egypt. And that snake, when he speaks to the woman, what does he say to her? He says, Lo mot timutun, you won't die. Ki Elohim ki mimenu. Because God knows that the day that you eat from that tree of knowledge, your eyes will be opened. You will be godlike in your knowledge, right? Doesn't that sound Egypt-like, right? The snake seems to be saying to humans, you don't need to obey God. You can eat from the tree of knowledge, and then you don't have to depend on God because you yourselves will be godlike in your power. You can self Deify, right? Vayitem ka'elokim. You can be godlike. 
That's the snake. The snake represents the dangers of living in a place which is defined by easy fertility, which can easily edge out God. This, of course, is part of uh, um, uh, what we see in Egypt as well. I I, I was describing before some of the ways in which the prophets talk about Egypt. Yeshayahu, when he talks about Egypt, says as follows. He says, Umitzrayim Adam velo el. Right? Mitzrayim, it's a place of humans, right? Or Mitzrayim is a human, not a god, right? So, you know, we, we never go back to Egypt or meant to leave Egypt behind. And perhaps this is also why Ganeden remains an elusive place in the Tanakh. And instead, the land of Israel replaces Ganeden, becoming the new ideal setting for the human god relationship, the new place where God walks among us. V'hit halachti betochachem, kol Hashem Elokim mithalech began leruach hayom. This Eretz Yisrael is a place where God is accessible, but Eretz Yisrael replaces Ganeden with one striking emendation. One might even call it a tikkun. And that is, of course, as we said before, that it is not a place of rivers. It is a place where limtar hashamayim tishte mayim. By the rains of heaven, you drink water. And therefore, Israel can create a society of prosperity, a society of success, while at the same time trying to retain their sense of dependence upon God, because rain, the source of theirs, of our survival, of our economic prosperity in Israel, recalls for them that God is the one who is providing them with this prosperity. In Israel, we have a land which reminds us all the time that God's attention is focused upon that land, that there is an inbred mechanism for keeping the people connected to God, recognizing that God is the source of our prosperity. People of Israel are being told by Moshe in this week's Parsha to build a society, one that is not opposed to economic success, to greatness, to uh, technological achievements, but rather succeeds always in maintaining an awareness of God's role in all of these achievements. I think this is a particularly important message today. Many of us today live in a world in which human accomplishments seem unlimited, in a world which seems to be of our own making. It seems to be under our control. We run the risk of beginning to perceive our success as success which is obtained independently. We run the risk of beginning to declare, Mi Hashem, Asher Shema Bikolo, who is God that I should listen to his voice, or perhaps even more egregiously, Lo Yadati et Hashem. I do not know this God. And so this message, I think, this is a critical message for understanding not what the land of Israel is about, but what the land of Israel is teaching us to create to build. I will say one final thing, and I think that maybe some of you are are thinking as I'm saying this, that, you know, this is not true about the land of Israel today. We are not dependent upon rain for our survival, for our economic prosperity in the same way in which 
Am Yisrael were when they entered the land uh, during, you know, during the, the times of the Tanakh. And, and so perhaps I'll just end with one final note. Of course, today we have all sorts of ways uh, to, to obtain water and to obtain economic prosperity in the land of Israel. And yet, of course, we are still being given the charge to turn our attention to the source of our success, to make sure that we don't lose our sense of dependence on God, to make sure that we don't forget God and begin to say, it is my strength, my hands that obtained all of these accomplishments. And so, you know, I want to suggest that the Tanakh recognizes that, you know, this is actually the ultimate ideal. The ultimate ideal is not necessarily uh, the land of Israel where the only way to obtain success is through rain, but the ideal is still some kind of Ghanaian like society, perhaps something like what we have today in the land of Israel. The ideal is to live in a Ghanaian like existence, a land of rivers, a land of easy blossoming, a land in which nature enables humans to obtain success, but without losing sight in any case of our dependence upon God. Where do we see this in Tanakh? This perhaps is Zechariah's prophetic description of the end of days, which envisions a land of Israel, which envisions Yerushalayim, with a constant supply of water, a true return to the Garden of Eden. Zechariah, in his final parak in Parak Yudalid, in Pasukhet, describes as follows, It will be on that day, There will be living water flowing out of Jerusalem, There will always be water flowing in both directions, east and west, in the summer, in the winter, and still God will be known as the king of all the world. In this prophetic vision, Zechariah returns uh, the land of Israel to the pre-sin state of Gan Eden, despite the abundant waters that we find in Jerusalem we can still recognize God's kingship. We can still recognize our dependence upon God for success. This is the ultimate goal, the end of days, the ability to create, to build a society which maintains awareness of God, of our dependence upon God, even when we have achieved success. I wish you all a Shabbat Shalom. Thanks for listening. You can stream and download all Matan podcast episodes on Spotify, iTunes, and Matan's website. Feel free to share feedback with us as you listen. You can write us at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Lastly, please do Matan podcast and women's Torah learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new audiences. Shabbat Shalom.